We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to another edition of the People I Sort of Know podcast. Today, we're going to talk with Hogan Gidley. Hogan's been a friend of mine for a while now, several years. He worked in the White House under Donald Trump as a deputy press secretary. He was also the communications director for Trump's re-election campaign in 2020. He's been on multiple other presidential campaigns throughout the uh, the years in communications. But today, we're not going to talk a lot about or really talk any about any specific political issues. That's not what today's podcast is. We're going to talk talking about a lot of things. We're going to talk about just uh, his his ability to keep schedules, something that I've been working on in my life as far as discipline to working out, eating correctly. Hogan's been excellent at that for more than two decades with a very hectic lifestyle, very hectic uh, career, I guess I should say, between not knowing what's coming next, especially during his time in the White House. So we're going to talk about those things. We're going to get into... Uh, some different things involved with his job, things as far as um, presidential campaigns, what, what those are like. We're getting into some topics as far as, uh, you know, speaking for the country in some different ways, the gravity that comes with that. A lot of stuff coming up with Hogan today. Again, he's an Ole Miss grad, played tennis at Ole Miss. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Just hang in there with us here for a, uh, a little while. It's a little longer episode than I typically do, but we kind of got going and just kept talking. So, Again, a lot of stuff coming up here on the show today. Um, Hogan gives us a ton of time, so let's jump into it now. Here is Hogan Gidley on the People I Sort of Know podcast. Hogan Gidley now joining us, my friend, old Miss grad, in the White House, now doing all sorts of things. Hogan, we've been, I've been wanting to do this for a while. I appreciate it, and it's not – I've had several, several people ask me this because I've been talking a ton about I don't know, time management, trying to get in a little better shape, all that January stuff. And I'll tell you, it, it's not January, though. It's not about New Year's resolutions. And you, you're going to look at me and call me a young tyke and laugh at me here. But I turned 40 at the end of the year. And I'm kind of like, you know what? I've got like a year here. For some reason, 40 is this arbitrary number in my head. And I go, I kind of want to get knock out these things. I want to accomplish these things. And when I turned 40... I want to feel better about these three or four parts of my life for some reason. I, I, I don't, I'm not going through a crisis or anything, but I did kind of see that as this splice point and said, okay, it's kind of time to get my, get my stuff together a little bit. Get your stuff together. How? I, I don't know. Like I said, just get a little better shape. I mean, there's some things, you know, business wise, sure. personally, just kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Like I just, 
I, I love, I, I love. I, I'm a procrastinator, a, Hogan. I'm a procrastinator. I, I admit it. And I, I've got to get out of that. I've got to actually go do some of these things that I'm constantly talking about or writing down. Me, me too. I understand that. I, I, there's a book someone wants me to write. I've been kind of working with someone on that and um, trying to figure out how that works. And I kind of been blowing it off, blowing it off. And I really kind of took some earnest steps to do that this year. And then also talking to some other folks about some different projects out there outside the political realm or in the corporate realm. And, and uh, for various reasons, that's been difficult up until this point. So I understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to figure a few things out. Um, I'm not going to call you that young at 40. And look, there, there, it, it, it's not as arbitrary as you think it is. <laughs> things start to take a different turn at, at 40 um, and they're not up. You know what I mean? Everything's kind of on a downward tick at that point. Yeah, well, you know, what what is is intriguing me, and you and I have been friends for several years now, is you've had a lot of jobs that are definitely not nine to five, um, all sorts of hours, all sorts of travel, yet you find a lot of ways to, to take care of yourself. And I mean that in, in the utmost uh, compliment from that standpoint. I know when I was in D.C. with you a few years ago, you talked about, you know, getting your workouts in, and then you would call me leaving the White House at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock Eastern time, and all those different things and with your schedules. That I, I guess my, I'll start with this is when's the last time you actually had just this nine to five where you even could plan and know what your day is, is like? I mean, I would assume that even now, for the most part, you don't necessarily know what's coming every day, do you? Yeah, not not every day. Things are a whole lot slower than the White House. I'm sure that won't um, shock you to any degree, um, you know, because in that building, um, you know, it. it if something happens around the globe, you've got to know about it. So if a rocket's fired off at two in the morning, you're the one who gets the call to have the conversation. Sometimes you have to brief the president, not from a military standpoint, because he has military people do that from a media standpoint, which is my area of expertise. Um, yeah, I think, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's different. I love when people will say, what's your routine? Tell me your routine. And, and I'll tell them what I eat, how I do things, but it's always funny. It's kind of like, you know what you gotta do. You, you eat less, and you and you work out more. I mean, I don't, I don't. It's not. It's not. Here's a newsflash. You know how it's. There are some of those books that say like a smart thing a Republican said or a smart thing a Democrat said. Just blank. You know. It's like I want to say. You know. Fix all of your weight problems. You open it up. It's like eat less, and that's the whole book. Like it just says that on every page. Um, look. Again, you got to find something that works for you, Chase. And and I'm no health expert by any stretch. I, I would say my meals have pretty much been the same for the last 25 years, so I'm not too concerned about uh, you know variety, it, keeping it different. In large part because of my work, it dictates how I have to eat and prepare. But I remember when I was um, working for Mike Huckabee when he was governor. Um, so I've known Sarah Sanders since she was 19 before I worked with her in the White House and other places. So. Got to go over there for her inauguration, which was a blast. But, you know, uh, Mike, uh, and I have to say Mike now, because if I say Governor Huckabee, you'll be confused as to which governor. Sure. Um, Mike asked me one time, he, he said, don't you ever cheat? And I said, yeah, but I'm not going to cheat at the Fordyce Rotary Club where it's chicken fried steak and whatever. If I'm going to cheat, it's going to be a meal that I want. It's going to be a, a filet. It's going to be, you know, um, a good carb. It's going to be some good vegetables with a dressing. It's going to be a dessert of some kind. Um, I think that's important. Uh, if you're going to do it, do it. And I'll tell you a good follow, whether you love him or hate him, The Rock on uh, Instagram. When he does cheat days, my gosh, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. dude can cheat. 
And um, now again, he puts in all the work, you know, he makes billions of dollars to do it. So I understand, but um, I've always been someone who prepares my meals because I eat every two hours or so. So I don't want work to dictate when I can and can't eat. I don't want travel to dictate when I can and can't eat. So, and it's not always the best stuff. It may be canned chicken, not chicken breast I've made. But, you know, if you're on the road in Iowa and it's, you know, 200 degrees below zero, as it often is, and you're driving around, I bring a little blue cooler and I have my little meals in there. Um, I have my protein shakes in there. And it was funny because Governor Huckabee, when he was heavy, used to make fun of me and whatever. And then he goes to the doctor because he wants to lose weight. And the doctor says, hey, you need to eat every two hours and bring like chicken breasts in a bag in a cooler every day. And I was like, thank you. Exactly. Um, I think everybody's different. Uh, their bodies sure. are all different as well, obviously. I'm a morning workout guy because if I don't do it in the morning, I won't do it. Now, I take it to extremes sometimes. So if I'm on the campaign trail, for example, I go to a 24-hour fitness. If we're leaving at 5 a.m., sometimes I'll go to the gym at 2.30 in the morning or 3. That sounds crazy because it is. But I know if I don't get it in, it's the only time I have a chance to expend that energy and kind of break that um, monotony of pressure that's on me in any given day. That's just kind of my release. Um, and I think you've heard that many times from other people who, who work out and do certain things. But, I mean, look, I, I think for me, I have a workout I like to do and I have it all structured and I kind of do, I kind of pop along in those ways. I will say I take a week off every three months. So at the end of every third month, I take a week off. Don't do abs, don't do running or walking or anything. Um, because I think it's good for someone at, at our ages, Chase. Yeah, yeah. To have yeah. give your give your bones and your joints a chance to kind of relax and um, you know, just kind of replenish there. But that's kind of we can talk specifics if you want to, but that's kind of my mentality on it. When you've been doing it so long, you mentioned this 25 years, a lot of similar meals and things along those lines. That that's sort of what I've been. I don't know if studying is the right word. I've always read. Because I, I, I think one of the things I did is I caught myself reading books or watching videos or doing things, but not actually implementing them. And I'm like, why are you spending so much time reading and learning all this? And then you're not actually doing it in your life. You're an idiot, right? right. When you're doing that. But the point is, and this is goes for anything. This doesn't have to be about weight loss or fitness. This is just about part of your daily routine in ways that are being productive for you, whatever that is, that could be journaling, that could be reading, that could be working yeah. in the morning, that could be anything. But the point is, you know, you can't necessarily just be motivated by something because as soon as you take a day off, it's easy for that to become four days off. It's that you've got to do it so long that it's a non-negotiable. And I think that's what I am trying to get to with several other parts, not necessarily weight loss or fitness or anything else, but just in general. And that's what I find fascinating. You've done this for so long that, you don't even have to think about it. You just look at your mm -hmm. schedule for a day and you know, okay, well, this is at 5 a.m., this is at 6 a.m. Well, okay, that means 3 a.m. I mean, it just it's just a part of it, and that's not something you're willing to skip on at this point. Right, and I, 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 take, I go out of my way to find – if I'm traveling to find a gym, I go around and drive around and find it. How far is it from the house? Can I get in there before hours? Do I have to have a code key to, or a card key to get in or some type of fob? I think about those things because I know I need that part. But you look, you're right, I think – and one of the things for this new year I wanted to make sure I did was get up in the morning and, and after the gym, sometimes I go back to bed for 30 minutes. Sometimes I, I, I start reading, do what I need to do throughout the day. But I kind of made a checklist for myself in the morning in this new year to start reading certain publications I need to read for my job to make sure I go through those. And I go through them 
on Twitter or whatever, but I'm making myself sit down and do that. I have a devotion I do, uh, Charles Spurgeon devotion morning and evening. So I, I start with that and then I start going through the different uh, news outlets. So I have, I have, I have a 45 minute window there that I can do all those things to prep. And it gives me some knowledge for the day in my work. It, it, it also prepares me for upcoming issues we may face from a, a media standpoint, a political standpoint. And, you know, I, I think if I can start that by getting those things out of the way, then it just kind of frees me up at look when I'm done with work at the end of the day, I, I'm done. I'm not going mm-hmm. to work out. Some people love at night and you want to go. Another part of this is, and this is going to something I think you and your counterpart there on your other podcast would appreciate. I don't like a lot of people around when I'm working out <laughs> or in general, that's fine too. <laughs> nah, I like people. Okay. But I don't like to wait on equipment or, or, you know, so if I go at night, it's a lot of people and I have to wait and it throws my rhythm off and my routine off and I'm resting too long or I'm, you know, I'm having to do things too fast because I don't want to, uh, you know, get in someone else's way. And so for me, that's why it's so early. I mean, it's a five, five fifteen wake up call every day. And, and I, I, I just start my day that way. And so I think, like you said, it, the motivation needs to be there, sure. The results you want need to be something you, you have in your mind. But also, it's just a commitment to do it a certain way and to stick to that commitment. And it means you may have to change things on on the day before, meaning I, I can't stay up till 11 o'clock. I can, but getting up for the gym is difficult. I have to think start thinking about bed around 9 o'clock, 9.30, and I'm, I'm, I'm winding down, 10, 10, 15, if I'm not asleep by then, I know the next day is going to be difficult. So you have to start to shift your life in a way that prepares, you know, one step leads to the next, right? You can't just wake up at five if you're used to going to bed at midnight. It's going to be a hard thing for someone like, you know, for someone who doesn't do that to do, obviously. What made you start meal prepping and that kind of stuff at 20 years old? I mean, what what what, what went into it at that point? Well, I played tennis at Ole Miss. So, right. you know, most people don't have to worry about weight at 18. But I'll tell you this, I sure didn't have to worry about it when I was practicing four and five hours a day playing right. tennis. So in my sophomore year, I, 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 you know, I wasn't going to be a pro tennis player. I started getting scholarship money for journalism and things like that. So I thought, let's focus on a career. Who knows? I'm not going to go to the Australian Open at the end of the year. So let's focus on actually what could make me money. And everyone kind of jokes about the freshman 15. And I had a lot of attorney brothers who gained 15, if not more. Mm-hmm. And so I thought to myself, now how I want to gain weight, but I want to gain it the right way. So, you know, I joined a gym there in Oxford that wasn't, I couldn't go to the athletic center or the training center anymore for, for tennis. And I just, what I would look at was do, do protein shakes, do meal prep. And so my first job, this is going to be, this is going to be so sad. My first job in journalism, it's that old, it's that great joke that what's the difference between a large pizza and a journalist, a large pizza can feed a family of three. Um, <laughs> and my first job in TV, I made $15,500 a year. So I didn't have a lot of food around. I couldn't do that. I got my first raise to $20,000 after like six months. So then I could afford food. And I started realizing, wait a minute, I need to, I need to pound on chicken breasts. I need to do, you know, whatever. So I started figuring out a meal plan that made sense to me. And I don't know where I even came up with it. Like I was thinking about this the other day. And when you called about potentially having this conversation, I thought, where did I even come up with that? 
I don't know. It just seemed like eating every couple of hours made sense, keeping your metabolism going, doing it first thing in the morning. And so I thought, all right, I'll do carbs before I go to the gym because you need carbs to work out. So I thought some kind of cereal that's carb heavy, you know, no uh, non-fat milk or skim or uh, you know one percent or two, whatever. And then I was like, all right, then I need to add something after that. So I got to have a sandwich. I had a protein shake and then like a sandwich. And I thought, well, if I just eat protein, your body's going to eat that protein and it's going to go nowhere. So I need a carb. So maybe I make it a sandwich, but I don't want thick bread. So I got to get fine. So like, I just started thinking about these things, what seemed to me logical at the time. And now it's been, it's just whatever. I, 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 you know, I pack a meal to go. My office isn't just but a few blocks away, but I take all my meals all day because if I get stuck in a meeting, I'm going to pull out some yogurt and eat it. I'm going to pull out, you know, a sandwich. I'm going to pull out a protein shake, whatever. So I have it with me. I don't know. It just, I wanted to gain weight, but I didn't want to gain it the, the wrong way because I was always a skinny kid. Like I think my weigh in for, SEC when I when I first got to college to weigh in for tennis I think I weighed I think it was like 145 something like that 147 I think could have been one less than that and then when I left college I weighed 177 180 with like eight and a half percent body fat mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that to say look at me I'm just saying like I, I knew I could gain weight I just wanted to do it in a way that made sense and so when I left college I just want to keep that up. And so when I would travel, again, I get very, uh, you know, hangry is a, a real thing. And I get real hangry in a hurry. And so I was like, all right, I'm just going to have to start taking my meals to work because I want to be able to eat when I want to eat. I don't want to I don't want to have to stop work to go find food. I don't want to stop work and get out of a flow if I'm in something. I just want to be able to pick it a you know, piece of chicken breast out of a bag and just keep working on what I'm doing. I don't know. It's just weird. That's just kind of how it how it all happened. I'd say. What do you weigh now? I weighed yesterday at one seventy eight. Okay. So I don't think I've really gained a, gained or lost a pound in twenty five years. <laughs> I know we were talking about our good friends at Blue Delta Denim, who are happy to they can sponsor me anytime they want to. But it's a good product if you don't let, gain or lose weight. I, I think yeah. I'd be a good candidate for them because I just um. They, they do make great jeans, but I, you know, I, I don't, I don't plan to fluctuate that much. I'll tell you one thing too, because everyone always asks me, do I drink? Um, I don't drink during the week. Um, now Friday, Saturday, you better back up. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I'm saying like Friday night and Saturday, I drink, I try not to drink on Sunday. And that's one thing I really wish I didn't do now, but DC is such a uh, NFL town, Right. It's a party town. It's a brunch town. So Sundays are kind of big here. I didn't realize that when I moved here. But still, it's just moderation. And I'm not drinking things that would be um, overly sugar, uh, overly caloric. Um, you know, so that's another thing. Well, and I'll tell you, I mean, you hit it because you're so regimented. If you drink during the week, it's not necessarily even just getting the buzz or whatever at night. Isn't it? it screws up your sleep so so much. I mean, that's what I've. I've learned with myself. I mean, I've started, everybody makes fun of me because I've got fitness trackers all over and all this stuff, but I'm always into analytics and stuff. I mean, it's stupid. I mean, I I, I get it. But what I have learned is that even one drink, if even if it's at 6.30, 6 o'clock, my sleep goes to hell. It completely kind of wrecks my sleep differently. I do not stay asleep. My body temperature comes up a little bit. I do not handle 
I don't know if I'm not handling the alcohol. I don't know. It's not like I'm drinking like margaritas or sugary things, but I don't know if I'm not right. handling the sugars. I don't know what it is chemically, but I have gotten to the point where at home, like if I go to dinner or something, sure, I'll have a drink. I do not pour alcohol at home at all. I mean, I get made fun of on the podcast all the time because we'll do our Thursday night shows or our post game shows. And I've got like a LaCroix or some sort of seltzer water or something because I don't, I, oh, yeah. I, I don't drink at home at all. I've even got to the point where I will take a bourbon, pour it over ice and I'll twirl it. And I'll notice I'll never actually take a sip. It's like, I just get the ritual of mm-hmm. taking the glass and rolling it around and letting that calm the nerves or whatever. But it has, it has made a incredible impact in a positive way on my sleep to cut out alcohol for the most part. I mean, I just do not handle it very well. Uh, yeah. And again, I think everybody's different. I don't know what yeah. it, I don't know if it does something to me bad or good necessarily. I mean, I've had bad nights sleep after I've had cocktails. Don't get me wrong, but also for me here in DC, it was like you have one too many drinks, and then Russia fires off a nuclear weapon. You're going to have a tough time when the Situation Room calls to tell you about it to come up to the White House. So I thought, not the smartest thing to do to you know ha- have have too many cocktails during the week. But I I I I'd not had drinks during the week for a, for a very, very, very long time. That's, that's very rare for me if I do it. And, you know, I had drinks, like I went to Sarah's inauguration in Arkansas, as I mentioned, Sarah Sanders, uh, who's the governor of Arkansas now. I had drinks those nights. I mean, that that's a Tuesday and a Wednesday. I would never drink normally, but I thought, all right. So then I didn't drink on Friday night, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I kind of traded off there. Not necessarily fitness or our, our current conversation, but just in general, when you were in the White House um, and in any of the levels that you were for those couple of years, three years, whatever it was, um, your your day is typically not going to be known. I mean, you know, when you're going to work that morning for the most part, but I would assume that everything was sort of hell. What what would it take? You get off at, say, eight, nine o'clock the night before. What is the preparation for the next day? What does that look like as far as going to work, having a plan, knowing when meetings are, while also knowing that at any moment you might be on this news network or this news network or this happened or whatnot? How do you sort of handle that that that, that lack of uh, preparation possibilities? Um, you know, uh, do you, have you ever seen The West Wing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I laugh, but it is kind of real. The like walking and having like a quick meeting and a walk and then you turn to another room and there's another quick meeting and a walk and then another quick meeting and you sit down for three hours and have some long, ridiculous meeting and you get up and you walk on the way. And it's really interesting because it was just such a nonstop barrage. And I don't mean because I was in the press office, it's not just the meetings or the conversations. But you don't know what's going to happen. And you remember early on in the administration, it was Twitter. He would get up and tweet something early. And then my whole day, we had a whole day planned to worry about infrastructure. It was a kind of running joke, infrastructure week. And we wouldn't talk about infrastructure the whole week because you get up and tweet something and then that was it. And early on when I got there, October of 2017, I remember every morning, and I was the first one there because I get up, go to the gym, and I'm at the, I like to do things when there are a lot of people around because when everybody gets there, then my day gets kind of thrown off kilter. But they would come rushing in and be like, he tweeted this. What does this mean? What does this mean? I can't believe. And then after like a year, he would tweet things and no one would come in my office anymore to ask questions about it. They were just like, all right, well, I guess this is what we're doing today. Um, different anecdote, different story. But the preparation, I wouldn't say, is is something you can necessarily be ready for in the sense that it's always going to be something new every day because, like I said, it's not just what we do as America. It's what other countries are doing that affects our day, and we have no idea of knowing that. 
But I mean, you know, you have your meeting schedule and it's supposed to be this and supposed to be that and, and you're prepared for it. And when you get home at nine o'clock, I remember we, I used to laugh and tell people, you know, I was there at seven thirty in the morning, probably. And then I remember um, my schedule is opposite of Trump's. So Donald Trump would work till, you know, 11, 12 o'clock at night in the Oval, but he wouldn't come in till later in the day. He was always working from the residence, but still. But I remember telling people. When you get home, you'd have an hour at least to clean up some little loose end emails, things like that. So think about it. If I'm there at seven, most people got there around eight thirty, nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. At noon, so at lunchtime, I remember joking in offices and in meetings. I'm like, "Well, ten more hours to go, and we'll be all finished with this day." I mean, think about it. Noon, having ten more hours of work, right? It's it's just a and you and I have talked about this to some degree, Chase, and, and I love this conversation because it's so not a regular conversation I would have on Zoom or in a meeting with somebody or, or on TV, but it, it's it's a pressure cooker like you can never experience. And when all of us left the White House, I remember reporters would call and they would say, well, oh, you're, a lot of your folks are going to the Hill or some of you guys are going to corporate gigs. And is it weird that, you know, you, you're you, it, all these are a step down? And I'm like, are, are you upset that these are step downs? I said, well, nothing's higher than the White House. So anything's going to be a step down. That's not, of course, some people are going to go to Congress because they have institutional knowledge of the White House and how to best help their principal work uh, with the executive branch. But it's just one of those deals that's so difficult to explain or express in a way that doesn't scare the tar out of somebody because it is just so much work and it's so intense. Everything you do affects not just the people in this country, but people around the globe. That's just a hard thing to wrap your head around. I I remember watching I guess it was Larry Kudlow, who's a good friend of mine who did economics for the for the president. Watching, I was I prepped him for an interview he had on on uh, Fox Business. Now we don't prep him on the economy because he knows the economy. We may tweak a little word he says and say he said this way, whatever. But I remember watching the markets that were kind of in a free fall that morning, and he gets on camera and starts talking, and all of a sudden you just see him kind of plane out, and he keeps talking, and then all of a sudden they turn green and they start going back up again. You realize the gravity of what you're saying and what it means, the bully pulpit uh, from, from behind which you speak is something like you can never duplicate. That's a long answer, but you know, no, no, no. It's what's fascinating because it's, it's media to the nth degree from the standpoint of, yeah, I mean, you know, I might worry about what I say in the morning, but that's only potentially getting me in trouble or making somebody pissed off at me or whatever. Whereas, you are speaking for the administration, for the country in a lot of ways when you when you say these things or you get on this thing. So how does that even work? I mean, you obviously have this great institutional knowledge. You understand the the path for what you should be saying. But how much is just you answering the questions in an organic way? And how much are you almost kind of briefing yourself or being briefed on, no, this is the exact words or phrase that I would be saying in these in these interviews? It's both. Um, some of the best moments are the ones that are organic that, you know, we pick we pick fights or we we come, we clap back at somebody who's attacking us or the administration. But also, I mean, look, you, you got to be careful. You just said that. I mean, the ramifications of your words are infinite um, and they're real. And so how do you articulate something? And we had look, every press secretary who stands behind that podium has a briefing book 
this thick and you can you can talk about a certain top line because you're supposed to know a lot uh, a little about a lot so you've got a couple of lines you can throw out there and then and then after that um you know you can ad lib as much as you want to you can you can do um you know kind of some some freestyle as much as you are comfortable with and that to me those are always the most fun but you know you need to be careful in that role because you are speaking on behalf of a president. You're speaking on behalf of a country. And so, you know, a, a, an errant word here or there um, could, could get us into a whole lot of trouble, not just cause headache. Cause remember my job is to make the president's job easier, right? That's what I signed up for. It's not to make his more difficult. Yeah. He, he doesn't have to make my job easier. I have to make his job easier. And so a mess up, a misspeak makes his job more difficult. So you have to be really kind of tight on certain things like that, but then you know what he wants, you know what he likes, and you can use that to your advantage in interviews as well. It's what I find funny sometimes is they, you know, on, on either side of the aisle or anybody, you or whomever is, hey, they said this or they think this. It's like, none of this is their own personal opinions. Like, you're not getting up there and going, well, I hope and giddily believe this. Well, that right, that doesn't come into any part of what you're doing whatsoever. I mean, have you, have you had those, and I'm sure you have, but I mean, you have the moment where, you know, you miss a word or say something that maybe it didn't come out exactly right. I mean, do you, are you all in real time, almost kind of having a little bit of a, a panic moment and then figuring out how to recover from it? Sometimes. Um, and let me say, let me give one anecdote first, and then I'll give you another anecdote as it relates to your question. Um, I, I give a lot of speeches around the country, but also um, a lot of times I speak to students in various capacities and I'll inevitably get a question, which is similar to what you're asking, which is, let's say the president says something I disagree with, or let's say um, I'm asked to to go out there and, and espouse a, a viewpoint I don't like. Um, and I always ask the kids in the room, they get a little nervous and say, how many of you voted in the last election? And they all you know raise their hand. And then I say, how many of you voted for me? And nobody raises their hand. And I go, yeah. you didn't? You know, well, he didn't vote for me. I said, right. My job is not to articulate my vision or give my opinion. My job is to communicate what the president wants communicated. The same thing when I worked for Governor Huckabee, the same thing when I worked for Senator Rick Santorum or Senator Elizabeth Dole. Um, that's what I sign up for. Now, the second part of your question, which was, um, what was the second part? How do you recover if you know you've missed words or oh, times when you, well, have, you, you, you flub so up? Sometimes you don't. I remember I remember and an, an article was written about me at some point in the White House, several were, but this had this exchange in it. And I remember I was going on Shannon Bream show on Fox, and this was at the time eleven PM, so late. And after a long day, an eleven PM show is not your you know, you're not gonna be the sharpest. And since I'm a morning person, I'm definitely sharper in the morning than I am the afternoon or evening. Evening, not afternoon, but Something happened. I don't remember what it was, but it was significant enough that I had to, we had to get some people on the phone to have the conversation. Sarah and some others say, look, I'm going on. I'm going to be the first voice going forward after this issue. What are we going to do? It was something with Rudy, too, Giuliani, as I recall. And this is little, but still, I didn't pick up on it in real time. And I think... Shannon had asked me the question again to see if I could recover, and I didn't pick up what she was putting down. And I said, based on what we had talked about with our attorneys in the White House, White House counsel, Sarah and others, we had basically devised a way to say, 
There's ongoing litigation, and I can't comment on that. It's a good out, something that we could say, look, I, you can make a point. I think I made a point and then said, but as far as that's concerned, it's ongoing litigation. Except I didn't say litigation. I said legislation, oh. which, of course, has nothing to do with what I was trying to convey. There's ongoing legislation, which is stupid <laughs> as it can be. But it was something at the time that, you know, it wasn't that I was blanking on the word. It was that we had we had just gotten off an intense call of like, look, just just punt because we don't know enough about it yet. We can't really comment on on, on ongoing litigation anyway. So let's just say, OK, fine, that's what we're going to do. But there was something else going on in the legislature at the time. So my mind, and again, it was late, so it was a little scramble. But that was one of the instances where I just, I blew it. And then, you know, uh, another one of my, this is something that I didn't blow, but I, I, I got real hot about it. And it, I left the White House to go to work on the campaign to be the press secretary there. Trump had asked me to do that in June. I left um, a couple of weeks after, after we worked out all the details. And I went over to the campaign, and it was an interview with John Berman at CNN and it's still on my Instagram page by the way and it, it got a lot of pickup because I think you know Trump at the time had all the platforms covered it, it he retweeted it Dan Scavino retweeted it and so it was I, mm-hmm. I remember I went from like 4,000 Instagram followers to like 22,000 Instagram followers in a day mm-hmm. because of the tweet because of the exchange but anyway he was at John Byrne was asking a question. He works at CNN, was asking a question, basically trying to imply the president was racist. And I just I got sick of it. And I just I lit him up, for lack of a better word. And I'm sure someone's going to watch this and go, oh, John Berman beat you. Whatever. Go look it up yourself. You can decide. But basically, I just pointed to several instances in which this was during the campaign again, so I could talk freely in this way. And I basically it was something Donald Trump had said that they tried to con- tried to make like a racist statement. And I said, I, I just cut them off. And I said, do you know what an exalted cyclops of the KKK is? Well, Joe Biden sure does because he gave a speech for one at his funeral and praised him. I said, do you know who George Wallace is? Because he's someone in the South that was, was, uh, there was an award created for him that was given to Joe Biden, which he, of course he appreciated. Do you know what a racial jungle is? Because that's what Joe Biden said he didn't want his child growing up in. So don't sit here and tell me. I said, his, 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 and this guy keeps trying to cut me off, trying to cut me off. And I said, I said, Joe Biden's, you know, uh, history on race is, is deplorable or whatever I said. And I said, and I said, Donald Trump was opening up his clubs and his properties to African Americans and Jewish people while you were still popping around local news, John. And that was kind of the end of the exchange. And that was one of those ones where it was organic in real time, that was a, a a good back and forth with an anchor where both John Berman at CNN and myself probably got what we wanted out of that. He got me, him trying to cut me off and look at this guy being disrespectful and me just kind of brushing him back. This doesn't have to be in media. This is anything. This is whether you're having a, an intense conversation with a friend, a family member, you're talking with bosses, raises, whatever. I think anybody can can associate with this in a way, but what is the art of kind of saying exactly what you mean when you mean to say it? You know, a lot of people think of, hey, I wish I'd have thought about that 10 minutes ago or 15 minutes ago or yesterday, had I just done this. I mean, there's a certain just flow and rhythm that some people have and some people don't, but is there any way to improve that? 
Look, I, I do a lot of media training, a lot. I do some media training for people, and I've, I've, I've done it over the years. I was just helping a couple of people at, at my office uh, kind of go through this too. I, I'm going to use an interview like in TV or, or in print, um, but this is applicable too for um, an interview at, at work, asking for a raise, whatever, whatever, a meeting that you know is going to be contentious, whatever, or just – not contentious, but just informative. I always try to drill down and I tell people this. When you're asked a question and you just said, give the answer you want to give, whatever it is, or you want to give the answer you want to give, but you don't necessarily want to answer the question that's asked, which is always something we do in media. But I always tell them, drill it down to the essence of what you want to say. Find a clever way to say it. And no matter what the question is, that's the line you hit. Because that's the line that's going to be memorable. That's the line that's going to be replayed. That's the soundbite they pull out. I mean, I, I gave a written quote to someone the other day about a redaction in, in uh, FBI documents as related to Trump. And I said, um, I said something like, uh, yeah, it's going to matter unless the redactions make it look like the pavement on turn four at Talladega, Right something people in the South would appreciate that hoity-toity, you know, liberal elitist reporter didn't know what I was talking about, but it got pulled and used on Fox. I didn't even say it on TV, but the quote was good enough where they used it in print. Okay. As a quotable of the week. Um, it was on Brett Baer's show actually on um, at six o'clock on Fox. But anyway, that was organic, but there are more times often than not, there's one thing you want to say about a topic. You need to make sure you formulate the proper way to say it. It's the same thing. I had a meeting today that was, that was intense and I had three points I really wanted to hit. And no matter how many questions came during the meeting, I got it back to, yeah, but the point is here's this one thing. Here's the second thing. Here's the third thing. So it's teachable and coachable to some degree, but some of it's not. Uh, some of it, you know, you just have to have it. Mike Huckabee is the best I've ever seen at it. Um, and this is not necessarily where you want to go with the question, but understand humanity in a sense. I remember in a campaign for president in 08, I think, and this is not a slap at anybody, just whatever. I know you got to do a lot of, a lot of uh, disclaimers on your podcasts with people who don't understand what you're trying to say. Um, there was a question about healthcare. Someone stood up and said, and it was, this was a big field. This was 08, I think. So it was Huckabee, uh, Romney, uh, Gilmore, all these people on stage, Giuliani, all these people on stage. And someone asks Romney, my child just got diagnosed with cancer or said something that the child had an ailment. How can you help? Romney hops off the stool. Number one, I do this. Number two, I do this. Number three, and he kind of litanied that's how we would fix it. Fine answer, right? He gave them substance, knew what he wanted to do. Huckabee gets off the stool and he goes, I can't even imagine what my life would be like in that moment if a doctor told me my child had that illness. My wife got diagnosed with cancer, he said. Spinal cancer said she'd never walk, said she whatever. But by the grace of God, she has multiple children. She's jumped out of airplanes, Right. But as far as what the government can do to help you in this process, I would say there are a few things. He gave some answers, too. They both gave the answer. One had a humanitarian element around it that brought someone in. 
Bill Clinton was great at this. Obama was pretty good at it, too, to some degree, a little more elitist than Bill Clinton, but a lot more elitist than Bill Clinton, but still. So what I'm saying is some of it is teachable. Some of it just isn't. Some of it is just who you are as a person. Um, and Romney's a robot. And so he answers things in a more robotic way. He has the talking point he wants to check off. I have a talking point I want to check off, but I'll be honest, when I left Ole Miss, because I was, I was a broadcast journalism major, so I was in TV news. I lost my accent to a large degree. When I got into politics, I realized it's an asset. I can burn you to the ground, but if I do it with a country southern soft accent, people don't even know what happened. Your guts are all over the floor. You're bleeding to death, and I just gutted you, and you had no idea. So that's another topic altogether. But you see my point? There are ways to teach people, here's what you need to glom onto. Here's the strategy around which you answer a question. And here's the best method to get it done. And, and then as things, as you practice that and as you role play that before you go into meetings, before you go into interviews, it helps you nail the line. It helps you drill down on the point. The organicness of what follows, that just depends on who you are and how you are as a communicator. There was a message board thread playing off what you just said a few days ago, and it was discussing that across the country, not even in the South, people were hearing y'all more and, you know, the whole y'all, you guys, accents, all those different things. And I had chimed in on it and somebody said that they had not heard me say y'all much earlier, but I seem to say it more now. And I think it's right. I think that for a long time, I sort of told myself, I'm going to teach myself to avoid it. I'm going to that's like get rid of accents, but I'm going to be careful about words and there's connotations that come on it. And maybe I'm wrong here. I'm just in Oxford. I haven't traveled the country or the world, but I feel like either, as you said, you're being able to play more to who you are. There's things that, that, that are positives to it. But I also feel like some of these things just aren't the negative connotations that they were even 10 years ago. I feel like we've, we have adapted in some ways, in some ways good, in some ways bad, but where it just there isn't this oh he said this or did this or there's slight associated with it or that you would teach it to be avoided the same way we might have you know a, a decade ago yeah in large measure i think you're right but i'm going to give you different reasons I, I think remember back when you and i were kind of coming up it was tv news mm -hmm. sports center was big and then it was kind of more regional but they didn't want regional dialect they still wanted kind of a, a regular right a, a regular um, accent. Um, but then now it's, you know, uh, uh, HGTV and it's, um, you know, Cake Boss and it's ESPN5 and it's, um, you know, different, uh, you know, My 600 Pound Life. And it's all these different shows you can be a part of that open up people's eyes to different things than just the standard hair parted newscaster doing his thing or her thing. So I think that's part of it. But I would also argue, Chase, for you and me, when we started, right, you didn't want a negative connotation around your accent to prevent you from achieving something. Sure. Like I had to take jobs I didn't want to take as I was younger. Now I can be a little bit more selective Right now, I don't care how thick my accent gets when I when I show up in Oxford for a game or when I see some of my old fraternity brothers and we're out duck hunting or whatever. When I go back to Arkansas, do some, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't bother me. Whereas before, I was so conscious of it. So I think part of that's age too for us. 
in that I don't care anymore. You know what I mean? You are where you are in your career. And so now because of your bona fides and because of your resume, no one's going to say, he says y'all too much. They're going to go, oh, he's got good experience. That's great, right? If someone's going to tinker with that, then we can have a different conversation. But I think in large measure, it has to do with the fact you're already accomplished, as am I. So, you know, when Sarah took over at the podium in the White House, you know, she's got charm. She's got a, a Southern accent, a softness to her that, um, yes, she has good, she's smart. She's got good wit, um, a good back and forth with reporters. But, you know, she didn't have to clean up her y'alls or, you know, be a be a, a Northeast Harvard graduate to, to get where she was. And so, you know, it inherently, it never eroded her credibility. It just made her who she was. Maybe. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. You mentioned, yeah. you mentioned Iowa a couple times. What is it you like so much about campaigns? Uh, you know, because I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest. I, from a government so what is it like or what do, no, no, what, like? what do you like about it? I mean, just, you know, the, 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 the days, the road, the competition, the different ways that is a communication specialist, you're handling things on a day to day level versus any campaign versus the governing or doing things in the white house, because I, and maybe there's tons of people like me, I, I'm, I'm keeping up with news. I'm aware of what's going on in the country, but I'm not necessarily getting some adrenaline rush out of reading the news every day from a governing standpoint. But I love campaigns. I love the strategy of campaigns. 
I follow yeah. those or read books about those from just simply the trying to get people to buy into your message or your vision or your votes or all these different things that I would assume, especially in your job, it brings a certain amount of day-to-day I mean, frankly, it, it, it's as competitive as anything you probably do from the standpoint of just handling what's coming and there's a scoreboard at the end of it. It's competitive chaos. There's no question about it. But campaigning on its face is so inherently awkward. So people who are good at it are kind of unique. Um, it goes so many directions with this. I love the day-to-day new stuff. I love getting in a car in Iowa and it being, you know, 15 degrees and you're going out across – you know, it's a four-hour drive to your stop, okay? It's not like this state. This state's not a lot of close little pockets. you got to drive a long way to places. And you're seeing the the, the tundra, for lack of a better word, this this wind, you know, because there's no no trees to block anything. You see this wind coming across the road. And inside the car, I think I even had this on Instagram from years ago, I could write my name in ice on the inside. I've seen of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's cold, okay? That's kind of fun to not have to dress up and wear a tie, to wear, you know, things that you can get out. To, but also to talk to real people who care about real things. Some of them are very odd. Some of them are very funny. Some of them are mean. But to watch candidates handle that and me think about how I would handle it has helped shape me, too, as a communicator in my in my career. FYI, BTW, I don't want to get – anywhere near a campaign in Iowa right now. No way. I'm uh, that, 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 that time. I don't want to do that right now. As soon as I say that I'll be in Iowa, but yeah. nonetheless, there was a, a, a documentary that came out at the time because I was working for Santorum and um, no one was covering us. We were in last place. And a documentary crew asked if they could cover us. I was a comms director and I said, sure, because I wanted some cameras around for him to make him think it was on the news. You know, like I had to give him some mental uplifting moments. And they did this. It's a guy named AJ Schnack and he's won a lot of awards. In fact, I think he has some sports. Oh, he did the um, McGuire Sosa um, one. I think he did that one. I saw it on a plane. I texted him after. I was like, you did this? He said, yeah. But the but the but the but the uh, documentary is called Caucus, and because in Iowa there isn't a, a primary, it's a caucus. So in essence, it starts after Michelle Bachman had won the caucus, or excuse me, the straw poll, and Santorum was nowhere. And basically, they crossed, and Santorum wins. Okay, big deal. I'm in it a few times. That's not why I'm telling you that. Not that self-effacing. But it's so fascinating because Michelle Bachman's husband is like in the back of the room and you can hear it. It says at the bottom, has a little, the text at the bottom subtitles. Cause you can't really hear it. And he says, Hey, can let's thumb wrestle just old veterans just back here. Like he's like, let's thumb wrestle for if, if I win, you'll vote for Michelle. And he's basically like, yeah, I lost both my thumbs in Korea. Like <laughs> what? And then if I recall her husband turns to another guy, he's like, Hey, let's thumb wrestle for, I'm like, no, no, Stop with the thumb wrestle. You, you, you lost it, right? It's so odd, and you got to watch it because it opens with, like, these people singing the national anthem and these big heavy guys, and their bellies are coming out underneath their shirts, and it's, it's just America. It's so much fun to get out there. It's frustrating, and it's tiring, and it's sad, and it's happy, and we stay in the White House. Our highs are really high, and our lows are really low. Nowhere is that more important. 
the White House, obviously, but campaigns the same way. You have good days, you have bad days. You get a feel for it. It starts to get your adrenaline. You know, your your candidate catches on. People are all over him or her, and you got to get him away and, and work with the press. And you know, Santorum went from nobody to being in first place and cameras everywhere. And so it was a crash course in building a rocket ship mid-flight. But the reason I bring that up is because that's part of the campaign life. And if you watch that documentary, they did a good job capturing how that is and the conversations you have to have and the questions you get where you're kind of, you don't know what they're talking about sometimes. You have no idea what this one issue is this constituent is talking about. And you're trying to be nice and you're trying to help, but you don't understand. There's a communications problem. So stuff like that. You know, I don't know. Just I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, that's one of the reasons I, I find it so fascinating. So, do they just get lucky? I mean, were y'all one of the few campaigns they could actually get on, and then he takes off this meteoric rise? I mean, how did it become that they end up getting yeah. a winner out of that? Well, Rick, we had decided we we I was part of this, but I didn't, it wasn't like me and him decided. But we were going to do this. We were going to go to all ninety nine counties, which is something that a famous senator from Iowa named Chuck Grassley still does to this day. Every year goes to all 99 counties. So we said, we're going to go to all 99 counties. We're going to put in the work. If they reward us, they reward us. If they don't, they don't. But this is the only way I know how to do it. And Rick went to all 99 counties. So some multiple times we did everything we could. It was a, it was a, just a clinic in how you should run a campaign. And Huckabee had done something similar in 08. So this wasn't completely unique. And every candidate had kind of had their shot. You'll remember Herman Cain rose and then fell and Michelle Bachman rose and fell. Rick Perry rose and fell. All these people had these successes and then kind of started to fall apart. And Rick was the guy out there who'd put in all the work. So by the time Christmas rolled around, we were the only ones, you know, we, we were kind of the alternative because everyone had seen what everyone else had. When you're on a campaign, you've got to answer some of the toughest questions. You've got to get your point of view out there. And so people always say, oh, that person would be a good candidate. You wait and see. Until the voters start to hear what that candidate is all about, what they believe, what they d- d- like and dislike, and then they can kind of fall off. That happened with Rick and those that, that documentary crew just happened to be there for all of it. So, you know, there was a, there's a, there actually a group from LSU who was there at the time. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to take a picture for him. So I'm like, sure. So I have my hat on backwards and my coat on. And I found out the numbers had come in. I got a text, that number, you know, poll numbers had come in. And I went to the guy who did the poll numbers, who was there. And I said, what are the numbers? Because I don't know. And I thought, oh, you don't know. And I said it in a way I thought he was lying to me. He didn't know. And then they came out. And we were, I think, in second place at the time. So we knew it was real. But that camera crew captured it all. It's a fascinating documentary. Several things there in that. And, and one, and I think this this goes for, you know, media on both sides of the aisle, politicians and whatnot, because you, you know, Arkansas, South Carolina, Mississippi for college and your history, obviously been in the South, been a lot of real people. Whether it be you or just people you are around a ton in D.C., do you have to almost kind of like catch yourself reminding yourself of the normal American, if you will? I mean, in, in things, I mean, is there a certain... It's not like L.A., but, I mean, there is a certain, uh, whether you want to call it elitist, whether you want to call it people who are just around, like-minded people in that way. I mean, do you either, from a media or a politician standpoint, see people who simply lose their way once they get in that environment? All the time. This town is full of them. Um, And I think I've done a pretty good job kind of sticking to the old, you know, um, 
no one cares mentality, meaning when we have these talks in inside our Beltway bubble, inside the Beltway that goes around D.C., we all are hearing our own chattering mm-hmm. class. I'm like, guys, no one cares about this outside. I'll give you a great example. Um, the Speaker of the House race. It went in till midnight. People were talking about it for a week. It was days of jockeying, and everyone here cared about it. And I, I went on radio shows. I went on TV shows, and I said, guys, they care. The American people care from the standpoint of they want good policy, but they don't care about this jockeying. What they want are politicians to do the things they promised. They want someone to focus on the border and crime and inflation and high prices for gas and groceries. That's what people care about. Stop with this speaker's race. But here, that drives so much of the news that it's what we all talk about. And honestly, you've got a bunch of political junkies, a lot of nerds here in town who care about things like that. It's fascinating to some people. It's romantic to some people because it is the seat of all the power in the world. And it is. But to to understand that when you go home for Christmas or you go home for Thanksgiving or you go somewhere else and you get out in the woods and you put your boots on, you load up your gun, you're out goofing around with your friends, having a beer. No one cares. No one cares. And it, it, I have to remind myself of that less than a lot of people, I think. But I still have to remind myself of it, too, because I'm in the middle of it every day. You obviously want to whatever you're focused on, whoever you're working for, you want to uh, want to push that to their constituents, the people on cable news or when you're giving quotes or whatnot. But what is the and maybe there isn't, but I'm just kind of curious your thought in general from a Fox News, CNN, NBC, Newsmax, whoever we're talking about. It feels like all that's doing is pushing. And maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me. It's pushing us more into confirmation bias by the day where we're hearing so much of necessarily one thing. We're not necessarily getting a ton of all over the place. Is that is or isn't that true? And do you feel like that is destructive or repairable? Where do you sort of fall on that right now? There is a reason that the media's popularity sits somewhere between Congress and COVID. Um, and it's because they've been lying to people for a long time. And you hit on confirmation bias. It is. The news has basically become the editorial pages. You go there to have your opinion solidified or mm-hmm. to yell at somebody else, somebody else's opinion. You're not there to learn information. Um, now, you know, Trump would always come in. He'd be like, Hogan, who's the best to us? Who's the worst to us? Trump motions. And he would say, who's the best? Who's the worst? And I would say, honestly, and I'll, I'll call him out here. I, I think CNN, uh, Washington Post, uh, usually the worst in large measure because what they tell you is their news, but they're not. That's the real problem. It's the ones that try and I'm trying to give a really good word to burn under the ground here, but they're they're so not self-important, but they don't even see what they're doing. They're telling you it's news. You know, you CNN has a James Earl Jones saying the most trusted name in news. I often wonder how many takes it took him to do that without cutting up in the laughter, because um, that's just stupid. They're not the most trusted name in news. They have a lot of good opinions. They have a lot of bad opinions, and that's what their shows are. But a lot of these, a lot of these stations have news divisions where they do have news programs, but then uh, others are just, you know, Sean Hannity knows who he is. 
He knows he's not independent necessarily. He, he says that on air. He understands that. Brett Baer, straight news. That's a different program. Fair, balanced, and unafraid, he says. Um, and I think the difference between you and me and, and, and a lot of other people in middle America, they, they don't know. I had, I wish I could find him. I still try to find him, but he was one of my professors at Ole Miss. Um, Charles Rattery. Do you remember him? I don't you, know. He was my favorite. I love Ralph Brassett too, but Charles was my favorite. And he was a, a reporter in Memphis. This guy, this is probably a mischaracterization, mischaracterization, but he was an atheist socialist. But if you put one editorialized word in a, a TV package, it was an F. You got failed for it. Because he knew what news was. And he, he felt there was a responsibility for you as a journalist. Now, we'd sit by, back in his office and talk politics and you knew exactly where he stood, but he, you'd never see it in a story or a report. That's not a thing anymore. Because remember, I think people in large measure are getting ahead on their opinions or getting ahead on firebrands. So there's profit in it. And look, if you're Jim Acosta at CNN and you get a promotion as the chief White House correspondent, being who you are and acting the way you do, then everybody underneath you who wants that job, what does that tell them? I've got to be that way to get ahead, right? And they're not wrong because that's what CNN wants. I'm not trying to pick on CNN. I'm saying that's just a fact. And so for me, it's it's so layered because I was in TV news for so long and I've seen this just devolve into this, as you said, a confirmation bias. It's rare that, I mean, the, the, the American people don't trust the media and when you, who have divisions that actually put forth real news. And then I, um, you know, I, it's a long answer, but it's it's so layered and so weird. But for the most part, yeah, news almost doesn't exist anymore. So tie those two things up. I know I've kept you for a while now is I mean, I don't not necessarily a percentage. I'm not asking for a math thing or anything overly statistical, but just in general, when you're doing a campaign, are you simply trying to get as much of your base out or is there actually a number of voters in the middle who are listening to all sides? I mean, how much is actually in the middle that's gettable? Or are you simply trying to make sure you capitalize your, your base and your constituents that are already with you? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. It depends on the race. It depends on, uh, you know, statewide, national, whatever. I remember sure. Rush Limbaugh used to say, and, and honestly, I got to meet Rush later in life. And, and one of my, the coolest things I got to do was he came to get his award. Um, that night, the Medal of Honor, Medal of Freedom. And uh, he and I were texting ahead of time. And he says, I'm going to be there at this time. I met him out front and uh, out back and walked him through. And we sat, we got there. Trump wasn't ready yet. Take pictures with the people that were going to be in the gallery. And we sat and talked for 45 minutes, just Rush Limbaugh, myself and his wife, which to me was like the end all be all. And I got to talk politics with the, with the, the gold standard, uh, Rush Limbaugh. But um I'm going somewhere with that. You were talking about how uh, – remind me of the question. Basically, how to win elections. Is it, is it people yeah. in the middle or he, are you simply trying to promote your base? And, yeah, yeah, and he said it's a fa- – the middle is a fallacy. This is not exactly right what he said, but the middle can be a fallacy. You need to turn out your election. Go back and look at Bush. What he did was he took – you know, I don't remember the numbers. These aren't right, so no one checked on this. But, like, he took $10 million from the previous election and turned it into 14 million. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama took 10 million of his base and turned it into 14 million of his. That's how he won. 
I would argue that's correct to some degree because you've got to get your base excited. You have to get your base out talking about you as a candidate. You have to get them to go vote. You have to get, get them to get other people to vote. But at the same time, those people in the middle, you know, there's a reason that suburban women swung massively to Republicans in the 2022 midterms. Because we were talking about the things they cared about, crime, southern border, inflation, because they're the ones out, you know, in a, in a lot of households, they pay for gas and for groceries. They know what it costs to feed and clothe their, their children, um, to go out to dinner with their husband. They know what that costs. And so they understand that that issue. They understand that message. The messenger matters too. How you tell them something, how you say something absolutely matters. The brushness, the brashness of of Trump in 2016 was new. Um, people liked someone who just kind of cut through all the bull, got rid of, as you said, that beltway mentality and said, the people of America, this, this, I'm here for you. They liked that. And he won a lot of those people in the middle. So it's a real long answer. I don't want to unpack on the show, but I'll just say it's both. You've got to get that base ginned up, but at the same time, picking off anybody in the middle you can do will always, that'll pad the stats, right? Because there are a lot of people who in this last election, the abortion issue drove out a lot of the base from the left. In some states, it was young people, but from a vast majority, young people really didn't turn out any more than they normally do. Um, that was something I think the right didn't kind of count on as much because they thought people would vote the economy and other things. And they did in large measure. That's why the, the conservatives took back the house, but they staved off. The left was able to stave off um, some of the, the, the challenges from the right because of other issues too. Some people are single issue voters. Some people, you know, have multiple issues. They rank. I mean, it, it's a long complicated answer, but the, the, the short answer is you got to get out your base and you got to get out more of the base than you typically right. do if you're going to win a national election, but then helping you can get some in the middle too. That's good. Last thing, who's going to play quarterback in the fall? Do you remember – you remember this story I told you, Chase? When I was um, – for the campaign, I had to call and do um, like a pep talk for people in North Carolina going door to door. And they were saying, you know, I'm – they would get on there and say, hey, I'm Chase Parham from Oxford, Mississippi. I have a question. Do you think we really can win North Carolina, whatever? Oh, and I, you know. That's right. And that guy, it was a guy from Oxford. And I can't remember how Ole Miss came out, but I said, I went to Ole Miss. And they started screaming, hotty toddy. I said, yeah, hotty toddy. And so you have the press secretary for the president of the United States on the call to ask questions about this election. And we were playing Kentucky that weekend. And the guy goes – Was did he? I think it was defense. He said, "You think our corners can shut down Kentucky's offense on the road <laughs> in Lexington? I'll hang up and listen." And I was like, "Hang up and listen." Like that's the question you want to ask me? I was like, "I don't know," but I because I listened to you and Neil, I had some understanding of what was going on with defense and what we were trying to do schematically. So I was able to answer the guy's question, which was kind of funny. Talk about getting out of the Beltway. That was a great question to have. Um, you know, 
I'm going to answer this a couple ways because I would like to maybe ask you a couple questions while I have, because I got you now and I'm going to take your time. I don't care who's back there. It could be Jeremiah Masoli. It can be Jackson Dart. Um, What's his name? Spencer from uh, Oklahoma State. Yeah. Um, And it could be the guy we got from LSU. It doesn't matter. Walker Howard. Howard. If our line is what it was last year, we're going to have problems. It doesn't matter who's back. I don't care if it's Brent Schaefer, for heaven's sakes. No one's outrunning those edge rushers if we if we can't buy them some time. No one can pick up our defense. And it, it really does go to the – it speaks to the, the elite level of our running back in this last mm-hmm. year to be able to get through some of those holes, cut the way they did, the vision. Um golly, I was blown away at, at, at Judkins and what he was able to accomplish. But I think it starts and, and ends with offensive and defensive lines. You know, we saw that in the in the playoff game with the Bengals when everyone said three new offensive linemen, they're going to get torched. And they didn't. Not only did they hold up, but they dominated in the trenches. That's how you win football games. And speaking of the Bengals, Mike Hilton, man, that guy's good. What a football player he is. But he is – He's been that dude from the beginning. I mean, Neil and I were talking about on the show this morning as of we were taping on, on this on Monday afternoon. Is you know, he was a little undersized out of Sandy Creek in high school, and then he ends up, um, you know, it, it'll miss him. And he was the spy of Manziel and all these different things, you know, over the course of over the course of the years. And I do think from a college level, Neil said it, he's not mentioned enough in that number one top group of a defenders what they what he was actually in school because you look at his stats and what the impact he made he was higher than a lot of the guys we talk about from that era and then yeah. now he's he's become a perennial elite NFL football player playing that kind of that hybrid safety linebacker role that he does there for the Bengals it, it really is impressive what he's able to do in the size you know he he is um you know, and I'm always fired up. I love Dawson Knox too, so I love watching him as well. I always pay attention to those teams with all Miss players, of course. But good for Mike Hilton, man. God, what a great player he is. And he, like you said, I think you said today on the podcast, he could have almost taken out um, Allen. You know what I mean? I mean he mm-hmm. hit him. Whoo, that was rough. He almost got that fumble that you know they. I guess they called it a forward pass. But I, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say who I think the. I will tell you who I think the quarterback's going to be. All right. I think it's going to be Dart. That's what I think. Now, let me just put some meat on that bone. Because the stats between Spencer and and, and Jackson are pretty much the same from their year, Jackson knows the system. Give him a lineman that he can stand behind. Jackson Dart took some shots this year. Man, that guy's tough. I think because of the, the rules with Transfer Portal, Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, I think someone said this on the podcast that if you get to was it March or May or whatever, and what and one of them's going to be third string because Howard's going to be your your second string, mm-hmm. then one of them just transfers. That's the business of this now. If if the nil nil money makes this a more business oriented experience, the college football player, then they're going to have to understand. Speaking to you, know, you talk about uh, Lane Kiffin with his pro mindset. That's a pro mindset. We're going to bring in another quarterback, beat him or don't. You can leave at the end of the year or they can, right? So there's some of that I kind of respect probably isn't the right word, although I do. I'm going to be interested to see. But, but you know, I mean, look, 
Dart missed some throws, missed some reads last year. But every quarterback in the country does that. When you don't have time to set up and even think about it, I, I think that was a disservice. It would be a disservice to any quarterback back there, I think. So I'm going to mm-hmm. say Jackson Dart. And we're going to see how stupid I look in a few months. But that's No, what it's, the, it's the incumbent. I mean, no, you look at the stats, you're right. I mean, if anything, Dart – Sanders' best season, Dart's numbers from this year are still very comparable to that from uh, from Sanders' four years. But, you know, the other side of it is why spring's going to be entertaining and why as a, as a talking head, we're going to do it a lot over the course of the podcast, is you don't bring Spencer Sanders in with no chance. I mean, that makes no sense. So, I mean, he's going to have every opportunity and there's something you like about him. And, frankly, there's something you don't like about Dart. And, and the same thing. Or, again, you wouldn't be doing this. I mean, you didn't see – Ole Miss go all out with an NIL package, and I get NIL is only a year old, but they wouldn't have done it if Matt Corral was coming back for his last year. We go, hey, we're going to go grab a Big 12 starter and challenge this over the course of the season. I mean, there is no absolutely question. something to that. So I don't I think, know. I think, I think it, to me, and I may be remembering this wrong, but I remember Corral, when, when Kiffin came in and Corral had his first year, he wasn't great. Like, he was okay. He was good. You know, he made some bad – remember that six picks against Arkansas? He had some problems. He had two really bad games. And that – but then that next year, obviously, he is what he became, which was just elite in just about every level in the college game. And so I, I, I keep thinking Dart's going to be in that same little category. I may be wrong. But, you know, again, give him a line. He's got the run game. And I think he'll be a whole – I think you're going to see a whole different guy back there. But, again, that's that's my limited – um, football knowledge. So we'll see. Are you enjoying your schedule? It's at least a little lighter than it was a few years ago. It's a whole lot lighter. Um, you know, I, I even get a, a a podcast in or two now that I can actually yeah. listen to you guys and, and um, you know, some other podcasts where I kind of get some news from in real time, which I like. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I didn't get, I didn't get to get back for a game this year in Oxford. I really wanted to do that. Um, I got last year to A&M when we won at night when it was freezing cold mm-hmm. on the pick six. But I'll tell you, I was in the box, which I've never been before. I felt so fancy. But I remember looking at somebody and I said, what? We hadn't had a pick six on this team since, like, I was in school. Like, I made some comment. I said, I can't remember. The, I said it was like um, Cody Pruitt against A&M at, at, at A&M. It was like the last time we had a pick six and the next play. We had that pick six. I was like, yeah, okay. I, it's clear that I need to spend every game in the box in this yeah. one spot and help out the team, which is the way I can do it. But, um, you know, I, I really want to see how the construction stuff goes because I saw them starting to do – they'd started the Manning is The, the Manning, Manning Center, Center will be completely done this summer. It's it, it's on schedule. They, uh, they're doing a lot of remodel, renovations to the Manning Center. It's – it's all good. It, it's this summer for that, and they will uh, they'll, they'll be there. They put the they put the stadium on hold for yeah, frankly multiple reasons: uh, construction costs, nil yeah. instead of donations. Joe Biden, being honest, there's a lot. <laughs> got that one in. You yeah. uh, you know a, a lot of different stuff there, but for Manning Center is one that they absolutely are having on uh, on schedule, and I think everybody who is displaced like offices and all that stuff in the Manning center. I think they're, they're getting back in and maybe June or July. Well, I, I was there this past summer. Uh, I actually, I was there the week before the first game. I was there. I had to leave on the Friday before the first game. So I was mm-hmm. there doing some, doing some stuff there, giving a speech, but um, I saw they were doing it. And again, I used to work out 
you know, I, I, stuff like tennis, I got to go in there and work out at those places. So it's always kind of fascinating to get back and see what they've done to it. But, um, you know, look, I think you go online, you see those videos of like LSU's facilities or you see, you know, Alabama's facilities. And you're like, yeah, this is by the time you build it, it's almost, you know, out of date. It's almost obsolete mm-hmm. at that point, you know. So I will be anxious to see how they actually do it and what the what the amenities the players get, because you got to keep up with the Joneses and those things. And, and you know, we, we, we got money to do the facilities the right way. I hope we do it because that pavilion is speaking of facilities. It's a good one in and of itself. So, um, yeah, I did. Go ahead. No, I had, I had a question about, um, I've been listening to you guys on the transfer portal and I'm not trying to like blow smoke here. You guys do really good stuff explaining transfer portal. Really enjoy that. And, and the problems that persist and the problems that are created by it. Some, I think they'll address some, they won't, whatever. It's fine. But, um, and as Neil likes to say, and he's right, it's too new to know if, if just going portal heavy is going to be your, you know, the way forward or not, whatever. Um, are there any other, I know you probably can't say on this, but do we have a lot? I mean, there's a lot that can happen because the portal, when is the portal stuff completely over? That's not till spring, right? Well, I mean, yeah. So the portal window is currently closed, but anybody who's already in the portal they just have to enroll at some point that can be this week for January. That can be for August. They could just hang out the entire semester, just sitting in the portal um, as long as they're already there. And then the portal will reopen May 1st from May 1st until May 15th, because it will give everybody who has been through a spring, another chance to jump in the portal after spring practice, if they don't like their current situation. And then you do it all over again. And then you're simply, okay, are they going to be here in June for the summer? Are they going to be here August 20th for the fall semester it it is never ending and it it has some positives from a straight media coverage standpoint because it's always something but god i really do kind of miss those windows where we were just going to the big february signing day and that was the party and then that stopped and yeah you'd have some transfers but it looked i mean i remember essentially spying on jeremiah masoli when he came to oxford that weekend in 2010 you're trying to go hey is he here is he at practice where is he at that was a different time, but now it's just the never-ending nature that, and I'm not saying, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not digging ditches, I, I, I love my job, but you're just kind of always on call because you're, it's so new, you're not only on call as in what's somebody doing or are they coming in or were they doing or else, but it's, what does it mean and what are the rules? I mean, I was talking to somebody yesterday about Spencer Sanders from the standpoint of, okay, if he comes to Ole Miss, can he transfer in August to somebody else, somewhere else if he loses the job? What's required from that? Because he only has one year of eligibility remaining. He can't sit out a year. He can't do whatever. That doesn't right. exist for him. Well, can he graduate? Or does he have to have a certain number of hours at Ole Miss to be able to become a graduate transfer to then play somewhere else? Because you have to have that for a second time through the portal. You would have to be a graduate transfer. There's just things that – I feel like I'm – I mean, the only comparison I can make, and the, the, one of my comparison is much more detailed, but is if I started covering a professional sport tomorrow and they said, okay, it's trade season and now you have to learn the entire CBA in, in a week. Like, I feel like you're just on this crash course of we don't even know all the things we're trying to know, but if these things happen, what does that mean and what are the rules or what are the stipulations beyond that? I, I think – I don't remember which one of you said it, but it was like, could you imagine if – Jamar Chase at the end of one year was like, Hey, I'm on the market. 
just whatever, whatever the market pays, I'm going. And then the next year, yeah, you know, he goes to the Vikings. The next year, he's like, hey, I'm I'm back in. What are, what are you guys now about free agent again? It, it really does. It sets up kind of a, a weird recipe for disaster. At the very least, some chaos I don't think a lot of people are going to be too happy about. But, you know, this whole, oh, I, I had some of my friends, oh, this ruins it for me and paying players. I'm like, give me a break. They were paying your players at Georgia. Stop it. They've been doing that forever. Don't pretend like that's a new thing. It's just now it's public. And I think it's better because now you get to see kind of the whole the whole um, game. I will say a point you made today. See, I do listen. Oh, yeah. Was that it should be – they should have a database. It should, and be, it should be public. Why not, right? They're signing because of these things. And that's something that – I don't want to get into an A&M thing here, but no one's going, look, I really love Adidas, so I'm going to – I love maroon. That's mm-hmm. where I'm going to go because I like, give me a break, right? Everyone knows why you're going there. Just publish it. I'd like to see the market value for some of these kids and good for them. They're making the colleges and universities a bajillion dollars. Sure. Whatever. I don't have a problem with it. If but, the car dealer or the whatever is okay, is okay paying the kid, then be fine to put your name on it and go, Hey, here's the contract I gave him. And I stand by it public. Yeah. Go, and, and I think, yeah. And I think y'all said something like, Soccer contracts, these kids are 18, whatever yeah. they are. All those things are made public. Hockey contracts, they're made public. Baseball, same thing. I don't know why we wouldn't know that. But I think I'm going to be itch- – I'm so fascinated as to where that goes, where that whole process goes. Because are, are they going to protect the kid Does it be- in a way that they don't want them to see the contracts? Is that protection? Does it make it better? I, I don't know. I, I think that honestly, I think it's a self-fulfilling protection. I think it's so the players themselves aren't seeing what the other guy at their position are getting. I think it's hiding it from the team as much as the fan base or the public or anything else. Because I think you're talking about trying to avoid locker room issues with, hey, that yeah. guy's behind me and I'm playing over him, but he's getting six thousand a month or ten thousand a month or fifteen hundred a month. And I'm only getting this, and I'm getting Jack. I think I think they're almost trying to protect themselves. That happened at a school, right? One of the schools got the spreadsheet. Yeah, I I, I would, I would, and I could guess who it was. But I would say, isn't that weird that, like in the NFL, if Chase Parham, you're a cornerback, you're a shutdown corner, you've been proven, and then I get drafted as a cornerback for the same team, and they're paying me some massive contract that's more than you're making. I don't know how that works. I'm assuming that still happens in the NFL, but it's similar here in that. You're a you're a, Chase. You're a cornerback at at Ole Miss, and you've been doing it for three years. And they want me as a freshman to come in. And they pay me more than they're paying you in NIL mm-hmm. money. I could see that'd be a real problem. I, people would be really angry about that. Like you put in the work, you've done it, and now I'm some kid from some high school in the middle of nowhere making more money. Never done it. Never played it down yet. Seems kind of odd. Well, and the, the reason why it's to a higher nature are two things. One is the, the 18-year-old is typically going to be more immature than the professional player who's been through the process and whatever. And then the rules are the same. If the professional player is not making as much or making more, well, he gets that opportunity for that second contract. He's going to come up in free agency where if he's oh, playing well, gotcha. another team's going to come get him. And now it's it, it's sort of the same principle, but if you're trying to stay where you are, well, I mean, that requires the NIL to just, hey, here's more money. And it's just – there's no function to it where I can look and see exactly here are the rules because there aren't rules. I mean, it's just can I get this from somebody? It's can I get Thunderdome. this from somebody else? It's chaos. I mean, that's it's the word. Thunderdome, baby. It's discombobulation all the way around. That's what it is. So, 
and here we are just hanging on tight and riding it and hoping we can figure it out at some point or it, it, it the market levels itself or whatever happens. I mean, we don't have enough time on this show, but I mean, the, the, the thing that I'm worried about is there's a court case in California right now. If any of this rev share comes through because it will completely change the college model. It's not sustainable. And you have way too many people trying to force decisions that are not actually in these buildings or involved with the sports or the universities or anything else that are pushing things that simply are not doable at this point. So, yeah, there's a there's, there's a court case in California that they are saying that for men's basketball, women's basketball and football, I think are the three is that 50 percent of the revenue should go to the players. Well, that's a level that would destroy every Olympic sport at every school. You would not be able to fund yeah. every sport that is not the basically fo football and men's basketball, baseball, and a yeah. few other uh, schools. Um, by the way, uh, how's the book been received on your baseball book? It's been good. Uh, I am thrilled I did it. I am uh, very happy for the people who were involved in winning the title. I had a lot of fun promoting it, and I'm very glad that the primary it's promotion done. is over and I'm done. That is, that is, and, and I'm actually pretty close to announce. I'm not ready yet, and I'm, I'm not going to break news here. I'm actually pretty close to another project that I will announce at some point. But I'm, I'm enjoying a break. Uh, I am, I am thoroughly enjoying. Christmas passed. That was kind of, we're going to do all the signings. We're going to promote it through the holidays. And then outside of, I think the Kindle edition goes live in like a week or something like that. Um, where we're kind of shutting yeah, yeah. down. It, it is what it is. It was, it was great. Enjoyed meeting a ton of people. Um, just enjoyed the process. I'd like a little more time. It's writing a book in 60 days is not recommended, but all right, I, uh, I yeah. just, I know, I know we're running so long here. I, I just, yeah, you're good. G give me to, to, to offensive defensive player. Just in Ole Miss past, that you're were your favorites. Football, yeah. Um, let's see. I mean, because I, 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 you I, can I, name I've a couple. A yeah, you know, yeah. Laramie Tunzel on offense. Ugh. his personality, his dominance, everything about Laramie was just fun. Um, I hate that he was not available to us uh, to us more than he yeah. was. Um, when I turned, uh, I think I was eight. When I turned eight years old i had a rush Chow's birthday cake when i was when i was little um so there was there was that he actually the uh i have two balls behind me and i think i mentioned one of these on the podcast the one up here is from the gator bowl team that's the whole team signing the gator bowl ball i was i don't know seven eight years old something like that and then uh romero and deuce from the arkansas game and i think 97 or 98 um are the the the, the, the two balls there so i mean those are the guys that I grew up on. I mean, I can remember I, I, whatever year I was when Romero signed. And it's it, it's one of the few things where I'm like friends with him now. And it's a little bit weird for your child self yeah, yeah. to, be, to yeah. be thinking about that. But, I mean, I remember having a note sent in to me in whatever grade I was in telling me Romero signed with Ole Miss when I was in like elementary school or junior high or whatever I was. Like that was a that was like a thing. You're all like, hey, where'd the guy from Shannon go and all this stuff. So, no, it's it, it's those Didn't kind of guys. Didn't he almost and, – didn't he just narrowly almost beat Georgia twice? Didn't he have like some high ankle thing? And then, yeah, and then wrong? in the in the year and that State, State won the West, he broke his collarbone on the last like the last play of the game. They were down like seven or <sighs> yeah. whatever. He threw a hail mary, mm -hmm. and it uh, he missed the egg bowl because of a of a broken collarbone. So that's what it was, the collarbone. And I remember, well, I think one year was his leg or his ankle. But I met him at the the first bowl we went to with Freeze Liberty, the Birmingham. 
Birmingham. I was there. We had a big group. All my Birmingham friends went over there and I saw Romero in the, in the, like the, what do you call it? Not the jetway, that's it, planes, whatever you call it, the concourse. The concourse. And I was just like, I stopped him. I was just like, dude, you were one of my first kind of big follows for Ole Miss. That was cool. I, I, uh, this is a random story, but I, this isn't Ole Miss related so much, but I was thinking about this. And I know I think I've told you this before, but I think your audience, if they're even close to listening, to this would appreciate. So Burrow, I got to go to a couple of national championship games with Donald Trump. And I remember telling him, he asked me, should I go to the Alabama LSU game? I said, oh, yeah, 100%. But you're not going to experience – you did pro games your whole life. You're never going to see it. He goes, what do you mean? What do you mean? I, just, I said, it is the loudest, craziest – I'm telling you. He came back the next day, called me, said it was amazing. But we went to the National Championship game with Burrow. So I'm in the box. The president's in there. Myself, I just – I talked to Vince Vaughn, um, Barry Sanders – was in there, legs as big around as yeah, he was yeah. my my height. Uh Drew Brees with his family. What was cute was his kids were so mad because they all had on LSU stuff, of course. And his kids were so mad, like we're losing, you know, whatever. And Brees just put his head, it just it was so dismissive, but dad sweet. Like he just kind of rubs his head, I think we're gonna be okay, son. And I thought to myself, when he said that, I thought. I don't know if he's just trying to calm the kid down. But if anybody knows if LSU is going to be okay, I think he – like I felt like <laughs> I think LSU is going to win just because of that one offhanded comment he made to his kid. Like, oh, we're fine. What I've seen, I know what's going to happen. Like it just kind of – you know what I mean? And um, Tim McGraw was in there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Ezekiel Elliott came running through mm-hmm. there like a weird person. Um, who was the – who's the um, – the – the receiver, crazy hair. He made the incredible catch. He was with the Giants. Now he's, Odell Beckham. Um, Odell Beckham was there too. Um, and then uh, I see this couple over there, and they said that's Joe Burrow's parents. I said, "Oh." So I went over and I said, uh, "You know, Mister Miss Burrow, my name's Hogan Gidley." I just, and they said, "Oh, no, no, we're big fans. We love you on TV. All of this." And I was like, "Oh, that's good." I was like, um, now you're from Amory, right? And they said, uh, yeah, yeah, we're from Amory. I said, 30 minutes down the road, couldn't send him to Oxford. <laughs> like, what, what's, what's the problem? And they started laughing. They just started laughing. I was like, it's 30 minutes, guys. I mean, Baton Rouge is a lot for, I don't even know what you were thinking. It's an like, hour and just, 10 minutes, Hogan. I'm we, from Amory. Okay, look, it's an hour and we 10. Just, you know, we just know. laughed. We just laughed about it, whatever. And I said, look, congratulations on your son. What a great year he's had and all this and they said oh look we appreciate what you do and thank you so much and that was it so fast forward when eddie o and the team come to to um the white house and trump putting them in the oval office he's taking pictures with every one of them individual shaking hands i'm talking to orgeron telling him whatever i see darius geis in there too he starts running his mouth about Ole miss and uh whatever we start jawing about it, just laughing and Beside the beside the resolute desk, I see Burrow sitting there in one of the chairs. So he's by himself, kind of awkward, you know. He's kind of an odd, right? And so I just walk over and I said, "Hey, Josh." I said, "My name's Hogan Gidley." He's like, "Yeah." My parents said they met you in the uh, in the box, and I was like, "What?" He goes, "Yeah." When we when we won the, I said, "Congratulations on the championship." He goes, "Yeah." I saw my parents that night, and they're like, "Hey, we met Hogan Gidley up in the box." <laughs> and I was like, "His parents." 
like national championship night told Joe Burrow, Hey, we just met Hogan Gidley up in the box. Like that was their thing. It just made me laugh so hard, but he, you, you guys touched on this in the podcast, man, that guy's good. Oh, he's he was great in college, but he is really unbelievable. And so back to the old Miss part, I was trying to think of a player. Um, I mean, obviously I'm an Eli guy for sure. But, like, the ones that I – you know, the Deuce McAllisters of the world, you, you, you start to wish you had those pieces all in the same – I know all play all fans do this, but you start to think about that. Patrick Willis I thought was such a good kid. He was so good. I like that – I like that Freeze first team with the Cody Pruitts and the – you know, I mean, I thought, I thought they were great. That was one of the best teams ever from the standpoint of simply – Believing in themselves, the redemption, kind of finding itself. I mean, look, look, I mean, Freeze can be a hell of a football coach, and he was that year. I mean, he really was. He was, he he was phenomenal. Um, that, he's gonna be good. He's gonna be good at Auburn. He is. I, I think he's gonna do well. It, it's, I think he's gonna do really well. That team will always kind of be one to me. It goes, yeah, that's 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 one you just enjoyed that you covered because of the entire story around them and coming from the beat down nature of what that Houston nut era was in 2011 and just yeah. seeing that six and six, seven and six can be such a nice thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. That doesn't always happen. We we had a group, we had 30 people got a bus at, at this buddy's house in Birmingham. We all went over together and you have thought we were going to the national show. We had a ball. Yeah. Like, and we didn't care if we won that game. We just wanted to go and congratulations to kids who'd faced such adversity and had such a roller coaster of, you know, the, the the coaches and the carousel and the whole thing, it was a really kind of, like you said, a redemptive type story, a really cool thing. I'm sure covering it was kind of fun for you guys too. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Yeah, but that, that, that Egg Bowl in 12 was one that always kind of, to get them bowl eligible, because getting bowl eligible is what ignited what came after that. Like, if they don't get yep. to a bowl, I don't know that they get Laramie and Laquan and Robert, because you had to show a proof of concept that I think took that sixth, seventh win, something uh Something along those uh, those lines. Yeah, and, and that's why I think. Look, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a Kiffin fan, but like you, I think we've talked about before, maybe offline. But you know, you had the ball on your racket to use a tennis term to win a couple of those yeah. games. You didn't, and Alabama was one of them. It was off. It was your offense. It was the offense. Now there were a lot of factors out there, obviously, but those are things I think um, he's got some proof of concept. But there are some 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 wins he's left out on the out on the field a few, and I think that uh, this year is going to be kind of a – again, it's a setup for 24. There's no question about that. But um, usually Ole Miss fans are looking to the next year. It seems like we're looking for the next two years, but that's okay. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's a deal with Lane where I think one of his improvements still has to be that he had, he's so competitive that once that main carrot is off the table, still keeping the same intensity that the season yeah. can still become good in a way because – you know, it's about winning the West and beating Alabama and these really lofty big goals. And then once that out of the way, you almost wonder if he has a little lull at times. It goes, okay, that's not that's not where we are. And now it kind of, you know, getting to the getting to the Music City Bowl is not what's on Lane's mind when he starts a uh, a season. That's uh that's for sure. But, I agree. And and the fact that and the fact that Freeze did it right, like mm-hmm. he 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 beat Alabama a couple times and did his stuff. I think it, it there's proof positive it can be done. There's just, you know, got to do it, I guess. It's not all the yeah. time, but it's, it you know, but it's still, it, when it's, when the opportunity is there, you got to take it, you know. 24 back in Oxford. It, it's one that they're looking ahead. It's one they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to need in two years. Just saying. So, yeah, sure. Hey, I, uh, anyway. I appreciate this, bud. Ton of time. I'm sorry I kept you so long, but I, uh, I really enjoyed it. We'll, uh, see where things go. Anytime, Chase. Y'all keep up the good work, and I'll keep following it because I really do enjoy it. It's a break from D.C. for sure, and I love 
hearing all the drama going on at Ole Miss anytime I get the chance. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Thanks, Ben. All right, bye. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.